this is the Ontolog Forum. We have today our invited speaker, uh, Dr. Douglas Leonard from SciCop. Uh, it's uh, November 17th, year 2005, and uh, we're really happy to have Doug speaking to us uh, on the topic, Psych, Lessons Learned in Large-Scale Ontological Engineering. But before we move to the uh, proper agenda item in that Doug's talk, uh, let's go around and have everybody briefly introduce themselves. I'll go down the list as we have it on the attendee list on the wiki page. Uh, Leo Obers introduced Doug later to our group. Uh, I'm Peter Yim, a co-convener of the Ontolog Forum and uh, from CIM Engineering. Uh, John Thompson from Boeing. Hi, this is John Thompson. We're in a conference room at Boeing, me and seven other, seven other people. I can read the names if you want. Yeah, please. Okay, John Thompson, Keith Williamson, Bob Higgins, Tom Jenkins, Mike Anderson, Phil Harrison, Mike Hartfield, and Peter Clark. That's it. James? Okay, yeah, this is uh, James Duma calling from uh, eBusiness Applications in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Um, I'm the chief uh, architect here. Um, we develop software components uh, and are particularly interested in uh, ontological applications uh, with respect to software components. Uh, Leo? Yes, uh, this is Leo Oberst uh, from MITRE. Um, co-convener of uh, Ontolog Group um, and uh, obviously involved in ontology's uh, semantics. Great. Uh, Summer? So my name is Summer Locke. I'm uh, from John Thompson Research Group as well in Delphi. Great. Uh, Kurt? Kurt Conrad. I'm an independent consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Bill McCarthy. Uh, Bill McCarthy. I'm a professor of accounting and information systems at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, Evan Wallace. Evan Wallace from the Manufacturing Systems Integration Division at NIST, and I'm involved in uh, semantic web and using ontologies for systems integration. Thanks, Evan. Oh, Walt Krakowski. This is Walt Krakowski from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I'm a senior technologist in the Advanced Architectures and Automation branch. And we're beginning some, we're beginning some research in the uh, use of ontologies, robots, competence with their environment. If anybody is helping us, please let me know. Thanks. Terry from Lockheed. This is Terry Jensen. I'm chief technologist for knowledge management here at Lockheed Martin Corporation in Reston, Virginia. Hi, this is Rex Brooks. I'm with my own company, Starborn Communications Design. I'm Executive Director of HumanMarkup.org, and I'm involved in several OASIS technical committees, most especially emergency management and the International Health Continuum, where uh, we're using ontologies as widely as we can to embrace various standards. Thanks, Rex. David? David Witten. I'm here wearing two hats, both of them health-related. I'm uh, representing the World Vista, a not-for-profit, trying to get health care systems based on the VA um, 
United States Department of Veterans Affairs, and I'm also here as a VA person as well. I'm interested in ontologies and how they can uh, increase the capabilities and reliabilities of health systems. And of course, David has been the author of the unofficial psych uh, website for all these years. Mark? Uh, this is Mark Greaves. I'm with the Falcon in Seattle, uh, where I run a program called HALO, which is a medium-scale, knowledge-based uh, question-answering program. Uh, before that, I was with DARPA uh, in the Information Exploitation Office, where I was one of the program managers that ran the DAML program. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Rich Keller? Yeah, I'm, I'm Rich Keller from uh, NASA Ames Research Center. I'm a group lead for uh, the Information Sharing and Integration Group within the Intelligence Systems Division, and we have uh, a number of projects ongoing in the area of semantic uh, technologies. Thanks, Rich. Pat? Hi, it's Pat Cassidy. I'm at Schneider uh, Corporation, and I work primarily building and using ontologies. Thanks. Bob? Bob Smith, Tall Tree Labs in Huntington Beach, California, and looking at ontologies and process management for healthcare systems, particularly as it relates to the National Health Information Network and electronic health records. Thanks, Bob. Dagobert? I'm Dagobert Sorgel. I teach at the College of Library, I'm sorry, the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland, Data Design, Ontology Construction, Thesaurus Construction. I'm also coordinating the ONTAC effort for uh, Planning on an ontology registry. Thank you, Dr. Bird. Uh, Antoinette? That's Antoinette Arsic at MITRE. Um, I was on the DOD taxonomy focus group to help build that core taxonomy. And I'm about to start a new project um, for a sponsor that has a collection, and they'd like to develop a uh, baseline ontology for that. And other than that, mostly I just follow Leo around. <laughs> Thank you, Antoinette. Steve? Steve? Hi, uh, this is Steve Ray. I'm uh, Chief of the Manufacturing Systems Integration Division here at NIST, where we work on a variety of uh, interoperability solutions and testing of those solutions in the manufacturing sector and increasingly in the healthcare sector and also for the uh, federal government. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I, I heard Michael is in, in that same room with uh, John and, and the rest of the group, right? Michael? Mike Ushold, you're talking about. Yes, oh, Mike Ushold. What are you asking? No, I, mean, the, 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 I mean, since you're an ontolog member, so maybe we ask you to introduce yourself. Oh, okay. All right, sure. Um, I work at the Boeing Company, um, and I'm mainly interested in finding ways to apply ontologies and semantics technology. Thank you. And Ram, Sri Ram? Yeah, this is uh, Ram Sriram from uh, NIST. I work for Steve Ray, and I am the manager for the program here called uh, Manufacturing Metrology and Standards for the Healthcare Enterprise, and ontologies are a big part of this. Thank you, Ram, who joined us. Sure, this is Kate Goodyear. How are you doing? Hi, and I'm with SRA. We're currently working on EPA ontology. Fantastic. Uh, welcome, Kate. Uh, anybody else? Uh, Connor Shanky with uh, Visual Knowledge in Vancouver, Canada. We're a 15-year-old uh, company, and 
large-scale lifecycle management system for building ontology-driven systems. Thank you, Connor. Uh, anybody else who joined us? Uh, I'm John Young. I'm with the American Council of the UN University Millennium Project in Washington. I've been working on an ontology for the area of future studies. Fantastic. Thank you, John. Uh, is that about all? Did we miss anybody? Has anybody not had a chance to introduce themselves yet except for uh, Dr. Leonard? Uh, this is Noah Friedland. Oh. And uh, I'm doing contract work for DARPA. Uh, uh, where we have a learning by reading program called Mobius that, uh, that uh, the director of DARPA has just funded. And, and so we're doing a nine-month uh, pilot study of that to see if we can get it get that to become a full DARPA program in IFTO. Great. Welcome, Miller. Thanks. All right. With this, maybe I'll uh, pass the uh, floor to uh, Leo Oberst, uh, our other co-convener, uh, who would uh, introduce our guest speaker today. Leo? Welcome, everyone, and I would like you to um, welcome uh, Dr. Doug Lennett, our forum today. Um, uh, you probably know Doug uh, uh, if you've been in uh, ontology-related uh, fields for very long. He's uh, essentially one of the founders of, uh, if you uh, believe in ontological engineering, he's probably one of the founders of ontological engineering. Uh, he's the CEO of Sitecore in Austin, Texas, uh, a company that uh, was formed uh, about 10, 11 years ago uh, after it was spun off from uh, MCC, which was a and which is a uh, research consortium, one of the first uh, in the, the country. Uh, he established the uh, his knowledge representation and common sense reasoning program. Uh, at MCC in 1984, uh, and uh, when he uh, founded Sitecore, uh, he founded it with the intent to commercialize uh, a lot of this technology. Uh, at one time, Syke, uh is still is the case, Syke is a, the largest uh, common sense knowledge base uh, in the world. It includes, uh, obviously, ontologies and ontology and instances. Um, uh, a lot of the research uh, that we're continuing the various threads on um, uh, in, in, in today's world were largely founded by uh, Doug and its group at Sitecore and uh, at, at MCC. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, we don't know actually who coined the first uh, use of the phrase uh, ontological engineering, but I'm sure that Doug had a hand in it. Um, he was uh, one of the first people to uh, address this knowledge representation issue, uh, developing ontologies uh, in AI uh, to allow machines to uh, understand uh, some of the semantics uh, that humans uh, already have uh, in, in our minds and, and make that accessible to the machine and uh, usable uh, via automated reasoning. Uh, he received his Ph.D. in computer science at Stanford in 76, and uh, his thesis was uh, uh, a, a program called AEM that tried to actually discover uh, information uh, about mathematics 
and before that he was awarded Hitchkai Computers and Thought Award in 1977. Uh, most of uh, most of the work that uh, Doug has uh, done and his group at Sitecore uh, has made uh, a lot of our work easier. Uh, so, for example, uh, the use of first-order logic and, in fact, the extension of that uh, to include second-order logic and, uh, and even higher-order logic um, really enriched the uh, emerging field called ontological engineering. His notion uh, and his colleagues' notion of micro-theories, a way to modularize uh, logically the um, portions of an ontology, people still uh, consider that a pretty uh, seminal uh, notion. Uh, what I'd like you to do is to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Lennett to our uh, group, and, uh, and uh, Dr. Lennett, Thank you for uh, joining us and uh, giving your presentation. Thank you, Leo, and um, thank you, Peter. Um, and thank you all for um, uh, participating. Um, I've never actually done this kind of uh, uh, webcast presentation before. It seems a little bit like talking with someone on the moon because of time delays. Um, so please uh, bear with me. Um, as I go through this, um, you may need to hit the refresh button periodically. And for those of you who are um, following along um, 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 with your own copy of these slides, I'll occasionally give the slide number so that you can resync up with us. Um, if, if you have any clarifying questions, uh, by all means, um, uh, feel free to um, um, to ask or interrupt or try to interrupt. Um, although, because of the, um, the the setup that we have here, it may be easier to um, um, to hold. So all of you should now be uh, looking at slide two, which says what led to psych. Basically, there was a need and there was an opportunity. Uh, part of the uh, part of the need is the opportunity is um, a combination of us having a good enough idea that we could get started, at least trying to get started um, as a null hypothesis and see. Basically, when I say that the time was right, what I'm referring to is the fact that in the um, early and mid-80s, um, the United States was scared to death of the Japanese fifth-generation computing effort, and um, American companies were very willing to um, um, pursue long-term, high-risk, high-payoff research projects, which is why MCC started. Um, and Admiral Bob Inman came to me and convinced me that if I was serious about um, the goal of actually getting something like put together in my lifetime, uh, the right way to do it would be to leave academia and move to the wilds of Austin, Texas, and um, actually make it happen. So to make a long story short, that's, um, that's what I did. Uh, but most of this talk will deal with um, the, um, the need and the, uh, the way we actually um, have been fulfilling that need um, over the last um, 20 years. When I, I listed all these different topics here, um, I'm not going to um, go through um, all these um, speech understanding and robotics and so on, but I will go through um, a few just to give you a few examples of what I mean. Um, so um, in this next slide where we're talking about um, Joe Weizenbaum's um, ELISA program uh, from 40 years ago was uh, where you say things like, um, my dog's mother died recently, and his program says, tell me more about your mother. 
which, you know, is a deep psychiatric insight, except the more you know about how the program works, the less impressive it is. Basically, it just doesn't know the word dog, and so since it doesn't know the word dog, it just hears blah, 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 mother, and says, tell me more about um, your mother. You could say it's 40 years later. Um, um, what is uh, doing well in the Loebner competition, um, Turing test-like competitions these days? And unfortunately, um, even after all these years, um, some of the best um, contenders um, are doing things not that much different from what Eliza was doing. Um, if you say, like, what's the color of a blue car? To Alice, it'll say some garbled Eliza-like, what color is a blue car back to you, and so on. Um, this last one where you say, where is Sue's nose when Sue's in her house, and it says where it belongs, that's actually not a bad answer, but it ruins that by then saying, try searching the World Wide Web. So it basically is just matching where is blank type um, templates. Um, if you go to Encarta and ask what color is a blue car, um, you only get two hits, one on um, the history of automobiles and one on the Central African Republic, I guess because it doesn't understand punctuation and capitalization. If you go to Ask Jeeves, you get um, pages that mention um, the words and so on. Um, I could give you lots more examples, but um, basically the, um, the real situation here is that natural language has pluses and has minuses as a representation language. Obviously, there's a lot of it. People use it. Um, and um, it's easy to efficiently index it um, and access it nowadays um, using um, Boolean searches with things, obviously, like Google. Um, but, of course, one of the problems is that there are lots of natural languages and that meanings within a language vary from time to time and place to place and culture to culture and so on. Um, and um, uh, often the analyst query um, or the user's query uh, requires combining multiple pieces of information from multiple places. And when I say combining, I mean arithmetically and logically combining um, information. And natural language is not always the most efficient way to do that. So on slide seven, we see um, um, a very traditional um, linguistic way of representing genealogical information. And if I asked you, is Edward an ancestor or a descendant of Sue or neither, after 30 seconds, you could give me the answer to that question. Um, but um, obviously, if I presented the information in graphical form down below, you could answer it in a second or two rather than in 30 seconds. So the different representations make different operations efficient uh, at the expense of uh, other operations. Um, here's another um, extreme example where to answer this word problem, the easiest way to do it is to set up um, uh, five equations and five unknowns and, um, and solve them. Um, and I could go through a bunch of natural language understanding examples, um, uh, many which stretch back throughout the history of uh, um, natural language understanding, um, where having common sense or world knowledge is required more than just uh, what we normally think of as um, linguistic knowledge. So um, how do we know that the first 10 here is a writing of on, on number two, the um, Terry Winograd's old example, obviously the, the different they's could refer to the police or the demonstrators. And it's your knowledge of um, the world, the police, and so on that um, cause you to decide what the right referent is. Uh, the same way here in um, these two sentences, how do you know that um, mother um, um, is a function of the different individuals, whereas every American has the same president? Um, or on the next slide, um, obviously, um, the speaker in the first sentence means that Mary and Sue are each other's sisters, but in the second sentence doesn't mean that Mary and Sue are each other's mothers, um, and so on. 
Um, and it's your knowledge of biological reproduction that tells you that more than your knowledge of um, um, English words and so on. Or in this number six here, um, how do you know that the fool in the first sentence is the person skiing, whereas the fool in the second sentence is uh, the person um, um, who's watching him on television? It's your knowledge of um, uh, things like um, um, skiing and television and weather and so on that enable you to um, to do that disambiguation. Uh, so just as a, um, well, I'm actually going to skip this example um, except go through it very, very, very briefly. This is um, an old example you'll recognize from uh, about a decade ago when we worked on, on the high-performance knowledge-based program for DARPA um, where uh, intelligence analysts posed queries um, that could be answered by a set of documents but in fact required combining pieces from multiple sources. So in this case, the question was could um, um, OPEC make up a supply loss by um, increasing production without increasing its capacity. Um, and um, the, the justification involves pulling in one piece of information from um, one document which had to do with how much oil was flowing through a strait, um, a piece of common sense that basically said that the maximum and minimum um, flow rates would therefore be um, somewhere between zero and that total flow rate information from another document about how much OPEC could have produced if it had wanted to, information from um, yet another source about how much OPEC was actually shipping, and so on. Um, and so by doing a little bit of arithmetic and logical combination, um, Syke was able to reason that, um, yes, it didn't actually matter um, um, how much Saudi oil was flowing through the Babel Mendep Strait, OPEC could increase its production by more than that um, if it had wanted to without building new facilities. There were a lot of cases like this where Syke got the right answer and the expert said, oh yeah, I guess that is the right answer. There were a lot of examples where Syke got the wrong answer, but I'm not going to show you any of those examples. Um, uh, the uh, original dream of Bob Kahn and uh, Vince Cerf and others for the ARPANET, the original dream of electronic data interchange, um, the original dream of the Electronic Dictionary Research Project, and I think of the semantic web as well, uh, basically is to allow exactly that kind of intercombination, exactly that kind of uh, um, joint use of uh, information across sources where the sources were put together without the knowledge of exactly how they would fit together. Uh, so I think ontology holds the key to doing this, um, but the problem is that there are um, um, at least five uh, very common ways that we cut ontological corners um, that we unconsciously um, uh, cut down on um, um, this and, in a, in a sense, fool ourselves. Um, and I'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. Uh, but the basic, the basic idea here is, um, as you can um, see from this next slide, to, to do a kind of integration across sources and avoid that quadratic tangle of, for example, data warehousing in order to get the sources to talk to each other. Um, here we have a very simple uh, query of um, how different in age were Uday Hussein and Kusei Hussein. Um, and from one source, Database 4, we know when one of them was born. From a different source, um, we know how old, on a certain date, the other one was. Um, and from those, obviously, you could get um, an approximate answer. But only if you know things like people age one year per year and 
Um, uh, the year of birth doesn't change, um, but obviously age does and so on. So if you have that plus a little bit of common sense, you can get the answers to these questions. Um, and incidentally, you can use this not only to answer queries, but you could use it to enrich or populate um, the databases. So um, in the end, you can throw away the part over here that deals with um, um, Psych or whatever other system you're using to do this, and you're left with enriched databases that in this case contain 1966, in this case contain 32, with citations or pointers or provenances back to the other database. So you can use that for database enrichment as well as for um, uh, answering queries. And this scales um, linearly, um, unlike the kind of quadratic solution if you just take things um, pairwise. So if we move on to um, uh, slide 21, uh, you can see another example. This is from um, a project we did um, a couple years ago involving um, uh, susceptibility of cities to, um, um, to attacks of various kinds. And even, even simple examples like knowing the number of inhabitants of a city um, and knowing uh, which cities in the U.S. have more than a million people, where you'd obviously go to one source to find that out. Uh, another source to find out how many animals live near each major metropolitan area. And you need ontology to tell you things like, don't add the number of pullets and the number of chickens, because pullets are a kind of chicken. Um, um, here's a database with four rows, sort of split across two lines here, but you see the four rows. and. Somehow we need to tell the system that in this table of this database, uh, the population field corresponds to um, the number of inhabitants of the geopolitical entity represented by that row in the database. Um, and we do that by making assertions um, in Psych. So we use logic, and obviously we use the terms in our ontology in order to make those assertions. So this is a, um, on slide 25, we see an example assertion which essentially explains to our system how the field called population in that table represents what Psych's ontology refers to as the number of inhabitants relation um, between some number, whatever's in the population field, and the referent of the row. Very often you, you need something like this because the existence of some entity is only implied um, by the existence of a row in a table. It may not actually be mentioned anywhere um, in that database. Um, here is a set of assertions for um, um, telling it things like the number of, or sorry, the type of format and password and so on to access it. Uh, this is an assertion um, telling it the number of expected entries if you ask for the number of inhabitants um, of a city of that table. Um, and there are various statistics that are kept that enable the system to um, prioritize and optimize for that kind of um, making use of the database in the optimal way. And yes, there's a little crude interface, so um, you can get a report of major cities and whether they're at risk or not. And if you ask um, why Phoenix is at risk, um, then um, uh, you'll get some uh, justification, uh, which essentially goes through the line of reasoning of the, um, 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 the system. Uh, in this case, uh, based on the number of hospital beds and uh, animals living nearby and um, so on. And if you ask, um, why Philadelphia isn't uh, suitable, um, then you'll get some um, explanation which um, describes, in this case, that Philadelphia is a little bit too cold on the day that you asked. Uh, so we refer to all this as semantic knowledge source integration, or SKSI, 
where we're explaining the meaning of these different um, schema elements. Um, so I won't have time to go through um, all these other examples, but um, just um, to take one more, namely um, search, um, um, many of you have seen our little demo of finding captioned images um, where the query that you ask for um, is tied to the caption by a set of common sense assertions like parents love their children and when somebody you love accomplishes something, it makes you happy and when you're happy you smile and so on, um, rather than by looking up um, synonyms or um, um, morphological variants in, um, in a table. Here's another example, um, uh, which a lot of you have seen. I'll skip this one. But it doesn't apply just to pictures. Um, obviously, if your query is to find um, examples of um, um, write-ups of terrorist events um, in Lebanon um, in the 1990s um, that occurred um, um, outdoors, and there's an article somewhere, for instance, a CNN article reporting some um, Beirut restaurant pipe bombing um, on the patio of the restaurant in 1993, you need to use common sense to know things like 93 is between these two years. And um, restaurant patios are generally outdoors, and Beirut is part of Lebanon, and so on. Um, so little tiny bits of um, world knowledge, common sense knowledge, ontological knowledge are needed in order to find this kind of match. Without those, you'll just never find it. It's not a question of efficiency or inefficiency. It's a question of having the knowledge or not having the knowledge in order to um, find that match. Here's one more example where um, you need domain knowledge, not just um, general common sense knowledge, in order to find this match. In particular, you need to know that Hezbollah operates in Lebanon. You need to know that SA-7s are um, shoulder-mounted um, rocket um, um, weapons that um, pose threats to um, airliners and so on. So with a few pieces of information like that, um, then you can find this kind of match. Um, so um, I won't go through more examples, but I could go through examples where we use that kind of knowledge for um, consistency checking and cleaning and so on um, as well. So um, over the last 20 years, we've put down in um, um, an increasingly formal representation millions of pieces of knowledge about the everyday world, things that you would assume other people know about the world. Um, and as we see on slide 44, most of this knowledge is language independent. The idea that writing pens are smaller than corrals, which are smaller than penitentiaries, has nothing to do with the English or French or Arabic words for those. And in fact, just because in English, um, all three of those happen to be the very same word, namely P-E-N, um, is really just almost a, um, an accident and an artifact. So almost all of psych knowledge is over here on the right. It's language independent. Um, and yes, we have an inference engine. Um, um, yes, we have interfaces. But really, the work we've been focusing on for 20 years is putting together this ontology, this skeletal framework, and fleshing out um, that skeleton. Uh, for those of you that like architecture diagrams, slide 46 has such a diagram where you can see APIs and interfaces. Um, on uh, slide 47, I give some examples of um, why we were led to this kind of um, increasingly expressive, increasingly formal representation language, starting with frames and slots. Um, here you see some examples where we're representing the fact that um, um, anything which is even partially tangible um, has to exist in time, so it makes sense to ask about when it started or when it was created. Or here you see a way of representing that um, um, 
causes precede events, or here we represent possibility in the case of um, um, being exposed to anthrax possibly causing um, an infection, um, and so on. Um, uh, a lot of people um, were under the impression that psych is a kind of monolithic or authoritarian sort of knowledge base, but actually it's divided up into many thousands of contexts, and things are generally true in one context and false in another. So um, we're able to represent different points of view, different levels of abstraction, different um, time periods, and so on, using this context mechanism. So there is no one right or wrong um, ontological commitment that we're making. Almost all of our um, um, statements, almost all of the structure is relative, um, relative to one or more um, contexts. And the contexts themselves are first class objects and they organize hierarchically and so on. Um, in much the same way, we don't have one monolithic reasoning mechanism. We have hundreds and hundreds of special case reasoning mechanisms which you can view as agents. Um, also, we don't um, um, assert that the knowledge in psych is true. A very small fraction of it is listed as being monotonically true. Almost all of it is true only by default, and psych reasons by argumentation, by gathering pro and con arguments. Um, Doug, can I just interrupt for one second? Please. The, the point that you just raised about there being several, several approaches to reasoning and acknowledging the fact that conflicts naturally exist within a knowledge base. It, um, I, that seems to be such an important um, idea that I don't know if many people get. Um, if you look at, say, for instance, the OWL language, it's, it's, you almost get the impression that it's around having one uh, system, one inference engine. Um, I, I, I just wanted to see, wondered if you could just uh, emphasize that point on the idea. Could, could you identify yourself? Uh, it's uh, Connor Shanky. Thank you. Yeah, yes, Connor, I completely agree. In a way, um, I would say one of the most um, valuable things that we've done in Psych, and um, this is um, um, largely due to um, uh, Ramanathan Guha, who worked with us for many years at MCC. Um, was to um, sort of bite the bullet on giving up the dream of global consistency. Um, it kept getting harder and harder and harder to add um, information consistently to our ontology, even harder to add consistent rules. Every rule is what John McCarthy would call a, um, a rich object, or what John Sowa would call a rich object, namely there are really infinitely many clauses that should go as conjuncts on the if part, on the antecedent of the rule. At any given moment, we obviously only write down a little tiny fraction of um, the correct antecedent of this, um, um, of this rule. And those simplifications, when you only have a few hundred rules or a few hundred assertions, are acceptable because you have a narrow context, like, for example, the Meissen medical diagnosis um, um, context in which um, those can stay consistent. But as soon as you start expanding your ontology, as soon as you start expanding your knowledge base, um, you begin to rub up against um, those sorts of contradictions um, because you made various sorts of simplifications and domain assumptions that you weren't even realizing you were making at the time. Um, and so it became necessary to go to a system that was locally consistent, even if it was globally inconsistent. It's very much like you live your life as though the Earth were flat. Of course you know that the Earth is more or less spherical, 
but you live your life nevertheless as though it were flat. And that works because the Earth is, from your point of view, locally flat. The surface of the Earth is, for all intents and purposes, flat. Um, and so, in much the same way, our knowledge base is locally consistent. Even though globally it's wildly inconsistent, um, we can divide things up into more or less consistent contexts. Um, and most of the reasoning is a kind of spreading activation from um, one of these contexts to nearby ones and so on. And long before um, we'd actually get to um, inconsistent information, hopefully we get to the answer to our question. So um, let, let me go on, but I really can't emphasize enough that there's only one thing that you take away from this that you didn't already believe. If it's the need for um, this kind of local consistency and contextual reasoning, I think that would be the most useful thing to take away from this. Um, so um, over the years, um, we've added a few million assertions by hand. I'm not talking about the deductive closure. I'm talking about the number of axioms that our folks have actually um, written while cloistered away in their cells here in Austin, uh, Texas. Um, I have a few of them here in, uh, with me. And uh, well, some of them are smiling. Some of them aren't. Uh, but anyway, um, um, if we go on um, a couple slides, you can see uh, the slide that says building psych as an engineering task. Um, this was a very hard lesson that we had to learn in the um, early to mid-80s, that as attractive as learning by discovery, learning by natural language understanding and reading are, when you're way over at the left edge of the curve, it's very hard to get that knowledge into the system that way because learning um, and language understanding essentially build on what you already know. And if your system doesn't know very much, it's hard for it to learn. It's hard for it to understand natural language, as we saw in those examples. So we were led to this sad realization that to get to this crossover point, we'd at least have to prime the pump. We'd have to build up some amount of this knowledge base by hand. And then finally, we could turn to what we wanted to turn to, which was machine learning and natural language understanding. Um, and we estimated um, that um, that particular amount of effort would be less than a person millennium of time, but not much less, um, and that we could do it in um, approximately one research lifetime if we had enough people working together on it. So to make a long story short, we've been working at this for about 21 years, and we've gotten far enough along that we really see ourselves now as having moved from this almost horizontal green line to this nearly vertical yellow and blue line. So we're moving from manual knowledge base building to interactive clarification dialogue and to automatically acquiring knowledge from um, texts and um, databases and websites. So this is a very exciting time for us and a very exciting time for the community as a whole, I think. Um, the guiding principle that we've had um, has has been to get this to work, not appear to work. And that's one of the reasons that we've kept a very low profile um, in the academic community for the last um, um, 20 years. Um, also, we've been inherently taking an engineering approach, not a scientific approach. Um, so we do science as a sub-goal, as a sub-method um, to solving the engineering problems that we're facing, not vice versa. Um, and um, basically, um, one of the good aspects of um, taking this guiding principle is that we can't afford a not, an invented here, um, uh, not invented here syndrome. So we basically um, have been absorbing all the good ideas that everybody's been um, suggesting over the years. I mentioned that there were five um, pitfalls or 
ways of unconsciously cutting corners. Um, I'll mention them now and mention them again in a few minutes. But basically, um, um, when you run up against um, um, a situation where you have a large domain, a lot of knowledge has to be put in, a lot of concepts have to be ontologized, if you're not careful, you'll end up making one or more of these five mistakes. Um, and um, to the extent that we've had to um, cope with enormous ontologies and enormous knowledge bases, we've been led kicking and screaming to avoid um, or at least regret um, these five um, pitfalls whenever we fall into them. So one of them is what you might call um, um, ignorance power or ignorance base, namely having a small enough theory size um, that um, you've carefully chosen the axioms, the concepts, the instances, um, so that um, you're able to get an answer. Um, you know, if Kepler had had a little table of um, five pairs of numbers, you would have come up with Kepler's law in an afternoon instead of in a lifetime. Um, so it's, it's that sort of pitfall that we often fall in, especially if um, we convince ourselves that whatever method we're applying will scale up without actually making it try to scale up. Um, a second pitfall is what we're referring to here as the static KB um, pitfall, namely um, if you're willing to fix for at least a while what your knowledge base is, then you can tune, you can optimize, you can cache, and so on. Um, but of course, in many situations, knowledge is continually flowing in, assertions are continually flowing in, um, websites and databases are being updated in real time, and you don't have this luxury. Um, a third um, pitfall is um, that you may have a problem where you can pick a very simple representation, like um, limiting yourself to propositional um, assertions, limiting yourself to simple um, inequality constraints, like scheduling rooms in um, 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 courses uh, for, for courses in a university or something. Um, and obviously, if you can get by with that, you should. But slowly, um, um, I think you'll come to see, if you have it already, that um, as you face more and more real-world problems, there are complicated rules that one needs to be able to express. And it's difficult to keep um, adding to the language, or at least it's explosive if you keep adding to the language to keep it syntactically simple. Um, that's why we were led, um, as Leo mentioned, to first and then eventually to um, nth-order logic as our representation language. Not because we wanted to, um, but because um, we kept running into more and more complex assertions that kept commonly occurring. Um, the fourth one was what we mentioned already, the need for contextualization for local consistency. Um, and um, the fifth point is um, that often we have mechanisms like truth maintenance um, but we don't use them or we don't have them turned on. Um, and so if you're not careful, you end up getting systems to reason more quickly or more successfully by turning mechanisms off that sooner or later you're going to need. Um, and um, um, yeah, OK, so I'm going to um, skip that one. Go on to slide um, uh, 58. We add information to psych bottom up uh, by looking at sentences and trying to automate the white space, not the black space. We say not what is um, actually being said here. Let's not try and represent that. Instead, let's think about what the author or what the speaker assumed the reader or the listener already knew about the world and try and write that down. Try and generalize that and add the necessary concepts to our ontology, add that piece of or several pieces of implicit knowledge to our um, knowledge base. Um, and yes, we also do top-down um, adding as well by analyzing particular domains. 
Um, I don't have time to go through very much of the knowledge base right now. In fact, this is actually about when I wanted to end my talk, and I'm only about a third of the way through it. So I'm just going to quickly go through um, a few examples. But um, you can see here dozens of ways that one thing that exists in time can relate to another. Um, on slide um, 64, we have different senses of um, part. Um, uh, the next several slides go through dozens of meanings of the word in, meaning physical containment. Um, and just because we have one word in English, namely in, doesn't mean that we should only have one relation in our ontology. Um, and so if you don't make the appropriate number of metaphysical distinctions, if, in, if you use things like natural language as a justification for under-ontologizing, um, then that will come back to bite you when you try to get the answers to queries to come out correctly. Here you see um, over 10,000 kinds of events that Psych knows about. Um, on slide 70, you can see some of the 400 actor slots, or predicates that relate a participant in an event to an event. Um, obviously, the point here is that you don't want just something like participant. You want those 400 types of modes of participation. Um, on slide um, 74, we see some um, ways of um, talking about emotions, um, different propositional attitudes like knowing and believing and, and so on. Um, on slide um, 76, you can see um, an example of one of the many dozens of representational issues, ontological issues we have to deal with. Um, namely, on the left-hand side, the, the true physical state of matter, solid, liquid, gas. On the right, the way things feel. So it could be that um, glass is... Um, 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 officially, physically, scientifically um, a liquid, but it feels solid, and so on. And so the way something feels may be different from the way that it is, um, and so on. Um, um, we have um, thousands of different types of devices. Um, um, you have to distinguish among weather phenomena the way things look ambiently outside versus phenomena seen from above, from a satellite. Um, obviously, a rainstorm seen from a satellite is in some sense different from rain um, condition that you see out your window. In the case of information-bearing things, we had to distinguish the physical book from the um, English um, text string from the language-independent semantics behind the text string, which might be language-independent. Um, and all three of those basically come together in what we refer to as a conceptual work. So we've had to make lots and lots and lots of distinctions like this, in many cases distinctions that don't have any short description in English, in order to be able to um, handle this intermediate um, ontology, in order to bridge the gap between the specific domain-dependent ontologies that we all build in our applications, and on the other hand, the general sort of philosophical issues that philosophers have grappled with for millennia. Um, on slide 85, you can see just some of the complications that forced us to give up our frame and slot representation that we knew and loved from the 1970s, um, namely being able to represent or and not and nested modals and meta-level assertions and um, quantification and nested quantifiers and um, quantification over predicates and so on. Um, on slide 86, um, you can see um, um, one of the um, hard lessons we had to learn, which was separating um, the epistemological problem of what the system should know from the heuristic problem of how it can efficiently reason with what it knows, which is why almost every piece of knowledge in psych is represented in two or more ways, one EL or epistemological level form and one or more 
um, HL or heuristic level forms um, that are efficient for one kind of reasoning for another. Um, um, if you look at slide 87, we see um, several different lessons that we learned. Um, one of, I'll mention one or two of them. Um, one was that um, uh, the probabilities, while they seem like um, they're useful, powerful, important, necessary, there's a trap here, and the trap is that if you ask people to make up a five-digit decimal probability for an assertion, they will make up a five-digit decimal probability. People are perfectly happy to come up with um, five-digit decimal fractions, um, essentially um, from uh, nowhere. Um, and because any two numbers are commensurable, this will lead the system into errors um, because it doesn't know which numbers to believe to what level of accuracy. So yes, if you have the probabilities, put them in. But very often, all you know is that something is more likely than something else, but both of them are very likely. For instance, most Americans know the first name of their boss and the middle name of their boss. You don't know what the probabilities of those two things are exactly, but you know that more people know the first name than the middle name of their boss. Um, and so that's the piece of knowledge to put in, not making up two numbers and making the first number higher than the, um, the second. Um, um, let me go on to um, uh, say just a couple more words about contexts or um, uh, micro-theories. Here on slide 89, you can see some of the um, if parts that might be left out of even a simple rule, like if it's raining, you should carry an umbrella. Well, that applies really only after the invention of umbrellas and if you're um, not planning on getting wet anyway, like going swimming, and if you have the use of your arms and so on. Um, on slide 90, you can see um, a few of the dimensions of um, context space, a few of the ways that one context can differ from another. Um, and um, we've had to develop a calculus for um, deciding that if P is true in one context and Q is true um, in another, in what context is P and Q true? Um, so here is um, an example where in 1985, we know that Reagan is president in the US, Dick Thornburg is governor in Pennsylvania. Um, so in Lehigh County in February of 85, Dick Thornburg is governor and Reagan is president. Um, but if we just change this in an innocuous way, like we've changed this to 900,000 doctors, um, it's not true that there are 900,000 doctors in Lehigh County during that period of time. Or here, if we say that I'm talking for this hour, um, I'm, yes, I'm talking during this 15-minute interval, but not necessarily um, during this two-second interval. Um, and why is that? Well, it's because we know that I'm talking down to some level of granularity, let's say calendar minute. So it's unlikely that there's a minute in the last hour when I wasn't talking. But there may very well have been a second or two when I wasn't talking, although it may not have seemed that way. And our representation, our ontology, and so on have to be able to capture that. Um, in terms of summarizing the technology, I would say um, it's important to think of this not as an application, but as something that can underlie applications, to think of us as a community um, extending this um, so that we can keep extending it as we need to to cover new um, applications. Um, I made a list of 20 applications in 1984, um, and you can download the set of slides and look at this. But um, one of the interesting things is I would say almost all of these 20 applications are still reasonable applications for ontologies today. We've thought of a few more since. but. Um, that's partly because of the advent of the World Wide Web in the last um, um, 20 years. Um, if we go on to um, 
Later slide, um, the next couple slides go through some government and commercial applications. Um, I'm not going to really cover those in any detail. Um, Sitecorp as a company, in case you are interested, we have about 50 employees. We get most of our money these days from um, R&D contracts from um, the U.S. government, um, from the Defense Department, intelligence agencies, and other organizations. Um, um, in addition to the contextual message, the other message that I really want to get across here, and I think this is a message that by kind of self-selection all of you on the call probably all is that you really need to share more than just um, the XML level, more than just the RDF level of things. You need to share the content and the context of things. Um, you need to make um, more than just a few dozen um, um, predicate level um, distinctions. You need to make tens of thousands of distinctions. If you're really going to be able to answer user queries, um, like this one on 103, you know that you could answer that query by going to the web and spending 10 minutes going to different websites. Um, why is it that you can't just ask this question? It's really frustrating. Um, what we want is um, something like um, 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 Encarta or Ask Jeeves or whatever, but that would actually handle a large fraction of these questions um, correctly, questions that, whose answers follow logically and arithmetically from several different pieces of information and several different sources out there in the um, um, in the repository or on the web. And we don't want to have to know ahead of time what places we have to go to. We do want to be able to say things like, give me the best answer you can in 10 seconds, um, and so on. Um, so that's why um, um, I really view this as the, the most important thing other than the context mechanism to get across in my talk, the need for us to share content and context in order to get um, the semantic web to become a reality, not just to fix on an XML set of tags and a small number of um, relations. Um, um, some of the rest of my remarks um, were basically going to delve into uh, a typical domain, in this case intelligence analysis, um, that really actually requires um, um, a serious ontologizing effort, requires solving or at least grappling with all five of those um, um, problems I mentioned before because the intelligence community can't get by with um, small knowledge bases, static knowledge bases, um, only simple assertions, only one context, um, and so on. So in that sense, it's a good problem. It's a good area for us to um, uh, be working in. I'll skip ahead um, a couple slides. One of the um, projects we're doing for the intelligence community is building a comprehensive terrorism knowledge base of unclassified information about um, the 30,000 terrorist events of the last decade, um, the um, thousands of known terrorists, the hundreds of known terrorist groups, and so on. Um, and we're already a fair way along in building that particular um, terrorism knowledge base. Um, we don't view ourselves as interface people, and indeed our interface is a kind of mad lib fill-in-the-blank, um, mix-and-match sort of um, um, NL, um, uh, sort of like NL menu interface almost. Um, you can see here some examples. Um, those of you who remember what we did in HPKB a decade ago will recognize this as not much different from the interface we were using um, 10 years ago. Um, it suffices, um, and people are able to use it to add information and to um, ask their queries and um, so on. Um, on page, uh, on slide 115, you can see some examples of um, the um, link detection problem. On the left, you see um, what the media and hence the public and hence Congress 
holds intelligence agencies to today, namely perfect 2020 hindsight. Over on the right, you can see the situation not in hindsight, which is, um, as Ted Senator says, um, piles of um, needles in um, acres of haystacks and trying to put together pieces of isolated information um, um, bits from different knowledge sources, which together imply that something bad, something worrisome might be happening. Um, in this case, um, generating terrorist scenarios. Um, I don't really have um, the time required to, um, to go through this example, but again, if you go through the, um, the slides, you can see some examples of um, like generating um, um, plausible scenarios and um, 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 attack and defense plans um, against those um, scenarios. Um, one of the things we learned in scenario generation is that you don't want to reason strictly in a forward or backward direction. You want to alternate going backward and forward. Um, here you can see um, um, the way that we're um, getting information from um, the web um, so that we find uh, common, on page one, on slide 124, common ways of expressing um, things in um, one or more languages, going out fishing, um, using something like um, Google to um, fish on the web to find information to populate the knowledge base in structured areas like this where you want um, dozens or hundreds of very well um, structured, very um, stylistically expressed facts about um, groups or individuals. Um, so if you want to know what the marital status of a person is, um, you can use your ontology of different marital statuses along with simple natural language generation to see how these would be generated and then go fishing on the web to see which of these causes a hit. So you can decide based on the context, for example, the year in which that source was um, put out there on the web, um, what someone's marital status was in a certain year. Um, this isn't particularly novel, but I think this is going to be um, an increasingly valuable, increasingly common use of ontologies um, in the next few years. Um, here you can see some interfaces which are enabling large numbers of people to add information to our system, and we want to expand those numbers even more. That's why we've released um, OpenPsych um, um, for um, all purposes and research psych for R&D purposes um, um, out to the web. And if you haven't yet checked out OpenPsych and research psych, I encourage you to, um, uh, to do so. Um, our motivation for doing this is to um, help the community bring AI about, to enable lots of people to help us build up um, our knowledge base and our ontology. Um, and also because we'd like to see what we've done um, help to become a useful component in the semantic web. Um, uh, research Psych is basically open psych plus the natural language system plus other assertions. By now we have about 60,000 open psych users and um, 50 different, actually I think now 70 different um, research psych user groups, each of which have um, um, obviously um, several individuals in them. Um, so this is sort of the end of um, the message or um, um, the, the summary, um, but um, if we um, um, skip ahead to the, uh, the reason um, that we're um, focusing on inference speed these days, I would say the three things we're focusing on are um, increasing the speed of inference, increasing our ability to do um, um, that kind of fishing and, and even simple natural language understanding, um, and um, thirdly, to do um, better um, machine learning, integrated learning, one trial learning, learning by reading, and so on. So learning natural language understanding and faster inference are the three places that we're focusing on these days. Um, 
Um, in terms of um, inference speed, and this is the last topic I'll mention before um, opening this up for questions. Um, uh, there are some kinds of queries where you expect it to take a long time, like generating scenarios of plausible terrorism attacks, or doing abductive reasoning. Like if you ask um, one day after the March 2004 railway bombing in Spain, um, who are the likely agents and what are the pro and con arguments for each, um, you get answers um, um, like this one, like Al-Qaeda um, might be suspect if um, it's expected that this particular event would decrease the popularity of a certain um, um, political group in Spain. Um, and you could um, have the analyst say yes or no or research that. Research that would involve generating uh, um, um, a Google query out to the web to find relevant um, articles which might or might not um, enable the analyst to answer this. But what Syke is saying is this is an answer modulo this unknown piece of information. And obviously, whenever you're doing abductive reasoning like this, you expect it to be slow. Um, for things that um, shouldn't be slow, um, you can usually interrupt and find out why they are taking a long time and um, fix your um, inference algorithm um, to um, enable it to not make that kind of mistake in the, um, in the future. For example, um, it shouldn't really take 40 minutes to decide that Arnold Schwarzenegger um, can't be president. And if you um, interrupt like after a second, it knows he can't be president because he's not a native-born U.S. citizen. Um, and if you say 20 minutes later, what the heck is the system still thinking about? It's thinking about other alternate arguments um, for why he can't be president, like um, because he's not a cow and cows can't be president and things like that. So this is um, a case where, again, um, if you know too much, the system can slow down, and we need to try to uh, make it faster. Um, we've just gotten a large um, project um, funded by ARDA um, to do a series of workshops in 2006 on making inference in large knowledge bases orders of magnitude faster. And I encourage any of you who are interested to contact me by email if you'd like to be um, um, part of um, that effort. But basically, what we're assuming is that there is no one simple answer. Um, there are half a dozen answers, and we're going to hold workshops on these half a dozen answers um, next year. So obviously, one thing that we often do is exploit limited languages whenever we can. Um, it would be great if we had a way of knowing what systems um, would be capable of answering what questions and handing the um, control of some problem or sub-problem or sub-sub-problem to one reason or another um, that could most efficiently handle that sub-sub-problem. Um, sometimes um, domain-dependent reasoners are, are going to be um, more efficient, like wind tunnel simulators or chemical equation balancers um, and so on. Um, sometimes statistical reasoning is um, adequate, in which case we obviously should do just statistical reasoning. Um, sometimes we need to integrate statistical and logical reasoning. Um, and um, you all know Daphne Kohler's work and others' work in the last several years in trying to make this happen. Sometimes unsound reasoning, even though it's unsound, is the most cost-effective way to guess at an answer. Doing abduction, like we just saw, doing induction, doing reasoning by analogy, um, and so on. They're not sound, but they're often very useful. Um, Meta-level reasoning, tactical and strategic reasoning, reasoning about the current state of the problem-solving process so far, um, and so on, is extremely useful and powerful. Um, a little bit of this goes a long way, but I think that this is going to be one of the half-dozen most important ways of getting orders of magnitude more speed in our reasoners. Um, obvious um, 
sixth answers include parallel processing and special purpose hardware and um, so on. So those are the different um, topics that we're going to have workshops on um, um, next year. And as I said, if you're interested, please um, um, contact me. One of the things that we're going to do is get the participants to publish their reasoning systems and their ontologies um, and um, enable the systems to call on each other by having um, patterns or triggers to decide what system would be um, good to call on when. So we're very excited about this um, particular effort. Um, here's a little quad chart if you later at your leisure want to take a look at this. Uh, we're doing this with Mike Genesrith at Stanford um, and some of my favorite people um, um, are going to be helping as more than just participants like um, Guha, who's now at Google, Chris Welty and Andrew Tompkins from IBM, Andre Voronkov from Manchester, and uh, um, a host of others. Um, so um, with that, let me stop and take questions um, on any of the things that I've talked about or any of the, um, uh, the things I haven't talked about. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Doc. So, uh, question? Maybe. I, I have one. Uh, on your reasoning workshop, are, are you looking only at machine systems or is man-machine systems part of the agenda? Um, as part of the other category, the sixth category, we were looking at um, um, systems where you have uh, various kinds of data transformations designed to enable humans um, to more efficiently notice patterns and things like that. So I, would, I was considering that as part of one of the six um, topics. I didn't really consider that um, a primary topic, but now that you mention it, it really would carry through to other um, topics as well, like um, when you're trying to um, guide, search, and choose um, levels of representation and so on, having humans interactively um, monitoring what the system is doing and what its reasoning is so far, and having um, humans um, um, able to inject correction and advice and so on um, would be a very useful um, thing. So we'll probably um, um, start talking about that um, through every single meeting and focus on it in meeting number six. Uh, is, Pat, um, is there an online demo that you can point to that uh, shows how powerful Psych is that people can just access with a web browser? Um, on and off, we've had um, such demos. Um, right now, you can, and we encourage you to um, download um, um, Open Psych and Research Psych, which comes with um, um, some such things. Also, uh, we've promised by the end of this year, i.e., a month um, um, or so from now, um, that we'll have um, up on our website um, um, an interactive um, um, psych application that will involve um, um, structured um, knowledge entry. We're going to make it a kind of game where um, psych is going to um, use what it knows already and what it's found out on the web to try to um, postulate various um, plausible statements. And then um, several individuals will be asked um, more or less simultaneously um, whether they think the statement is true or not. Um, and people's um, game score from their point of view will, will be based on, on their degree of agreement with other people, um, sort of like a family feud kind of scoring. And from our point of view, this will be useful because it will help us to um, um, explore natural language understanding, explore knowledge acquisition, and um, of course, in the end, acquire pieces of knowledge that way. A, a little follow-up, yeah. Um, as of right now, um, one 
problem one runs into in trying to get money for ontology work is um, the perception that the site has uh, been at this for a long time and look uh, what, what has it accomplished. Uh, how would you answer that question? I mean, uh, how, what could we show to people who are skeptics that, that yes, this is a powerful system? That, that, that's a tough. That's a tough question. Um, um, I guess part of the um, the problem is that uh, people generally want to believe um, whatever they want to believe, and uh, they'll rationalize either point of view. So, um, uh, if someone is going in um, going into this with a negative attitude, it's going to be very hard to. Um, to change their minds. Almost by definition, if Psyche had um, succeeded um, uh, right away, then its basic premise would be false, namely that it's going to require um, um, decades just to get to the point where um, we can start this bootstrapping process with um, machine learning and natural language understanding, replacing um, manual um, elbow grease as the mechanism for enlarging the system. And it's going to be another um, several years, possibly another decade or two, um, until the knowledge base grows to the point where we'll have a large enough fraction of common sense knowledge to be able to reliably, um, um, almost all the time, rather than only occasionally, inject and use that common sense um, when it's needed to power search, to power robots, to power natural language systems. So um, I guess the, um, what you have to do is show uh, examples of uh, what the system is able to do so far um, pick problems that are fail-soft in that even a little bit of improvement is good. Stay away from problems where if you fail to get almost perfect behavior, um, then you failed. So examples of fail-soft problems are improving web searching, um, where even a little bit of semantics, a little bit of ontology injected into web searching um, would improve the kind of um, Boolean combination of keyword searching we have today. or um, um, use ontology to do a little bit smarter um, um, spelling correction and grammar correction and style correction in text processing. Um, and um, there are lots of other examples. Fraud detection is another example where even a little bit of improvement in fraud detection would be cost effective as an application. So lots of application ideas that you can focus on like that. Stay away from the ones where you'd have to have perfect performance in order to have succeeded. Well, okay, but there's um, one example is just in, in a question answering, okay, natural language question answering. Now, there are, for example, on the web demos, like the MIT uh, start system, uh, which uses probabilistic parsing to uh, extract information from the web and other sources. And then answers questions. Of course, it fails a lot, as you'd expect. Um, but, but it's not, it's not just a control powered by an ontology. One would suppose that. If you had a similar system with your ontology behind it, it should be able to do better and one could compare the two. Is that a feasible thing for you to do in the near future? Oh, by the way, if you could speak up a little bit. I can rephrase. The question was, um, um, can, can we show some demos of ontology-based applications that are performing better than their non-ontology um, um, brethren? Um, and um, part, of the, part of the problem here is that um, the systems are computationally intensive, and so um, um, if we do most of the processing um, um, on our end, then we wouldn't be able to support large numbers of users. Um, that's been um, one of the problems that we faced, um, although um, with the way um, Java's been um, uh, advancing in the last decade, that's no longer um, as big a problem. So I think it's something that we should look into 
it's something that we should um, we should try and do, and not just we PsychCorps, but we as a community should try to do, um, to try to um, get that message out to people. Um, part of the problem is that you have local maxima, and things like statistics um, and statistical reasoning are local maxima. Um, and you know, by gosh, you can get a large fraction of, for example, to take a different task, speech recognition, successfully just by looking at um, the appropriate um, trigram frequencies and so on. Um, the trouble is the last few percentage points um, will never come that way. They'll come from knowing enough about the world in order to decide, even in this waveform, which didn't have enough signal in it, theoretically, um, everyone heard the same correct um, um, speech because they had enough knowledge of the domain and so on to disambiguate it. Um, and that last few percentage points in a lot of applications, like speech understanding, is really going to make the difference between not quite usable and um, usable. Um, it's the reason why we're still typing to our computers today, um, because that local maximum of non-ontologically based um, speech understanding um, is such a large barrier to, um, to cross, even though um, um, I believe in my heart, um, every bit of my uh, being, that ultimately um, the, the, um, the most, uh, most speech understanding systems will have to rely not just on statistics, but on that plus um, knowledge about the world and knowledge about the user, knowledge about the context and domain they're in and so on in order to do an adequate a human level job of speech um, disambiguation. So, Doug, have you done an example where you connected to some of the corpus of linguistics, things like the ANC databases? Um, we, we actually have been doing a lot of experiments like that, um, in, especially in the last um, five years or so. Um, and um, I don't know if there's anything that we want to especially report um, from that. Um, for example, we did a project um, uh, where we looked at national public radio transcripts um, of all things considered. Um, and um, um, Psych was used by um, uh, some other company to um, uh, to segment that, to um, do um, entity recognition and um, entity co-identification and so on, uh, to enable people to, uh, to find relevant bits of um, uh, transcribed versions of um, those shows. And we actually did a very, um, a very successful um, job of that, very high percentage um, success. Um, obviously, I'm mentioning one of the best examples. There are lots of cases where we tried and our, bit, our performance wasn't um, that much um, better than um, um, others, but um, I think that's because we only have a couple percentage points of um, the common sense knowledge base built. Um, I would say somewhere around 2% is the right fraction to, um, um, to think of, and so um, many, in many cases the, uh, the sort of benefit that you get if the, the psych were sort of complete um, is only about 2% of the way there. Doug, this is Mike Ushold. Um, I was just wondering, kind of following on a little bit from other questions, what are the, you're mostly doing research stuff today, you've tried various applications over the years, and I'm not aware of any really success stories that have come out on applications, and still your research is main source of funding. So the question is, what do you think is the future um, near-term or medium-term for commercial exploitation of spikes? When is it really going to be prime time? And what are the barriers, the key barriers that still need to be overcome? Uh, th thanks, Mike. We, we actually have um, a few commercial um, um, projects um, in the works. 
um, that um, I can't go into in, um, in great detail, but one application um, is a network security application um, at, where um, Psych is used to think about possible um, uh, attack scenarios before they occur, um, sort of the analog of the, um, the terrorist attack application for the government. Um, another one is a CRM application um, involving um, uh, psych uh, helping a user to, um, to have um, queries answered and so on. Um, so I think that the answer is that um, there is no real barrier if you find the, the right sorts of applications. If you find applications, um, as I mentioned, where even a little bit of performance increase um, would be um, highly sought after um, either because of differentiation from competitors or whatever. Um, so um, we, uh, I, I would say um, um, if you were going to look at um, a place to do um, ontology-based applications today, uh, contact some of the companies like um, Google and Yahoo and Microsoft and so on who are going to be um, um, snapping at each other's heels trying to find some technological differentiation um, for um, um, intelligent um, searching, for effective searching, where, as I said, even a little bit of ontology injected into that process can make a non-trivial difference in um, success. Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, while we have both uh, Mike Arschold and, and Doug talking, uh, uh, both of you being on our list, uh, you probably uh, remember uh, Dwayne Nichol and Kurt Conrad posting a call for uh, for use cases uh, because next month uh, we are going to feature a panel discussion on ontology uh, applications and implementation. I would definitely look forward to uh, both of you uh, reviewing what and Kurt is soliciting and hopefully uh, come come in with an example to to for that panel. Good. I, I, I let, let me also um, make make another um, uh, remark about um, why much of our funding these days comes from the government. In in the 1980s and the early 90s, it was um, very easy to go to large companies and. Um, talk to them about applications that might make a big difference to them five or ten years in the future um, and get them um, interested in um, um, working on and supporting research, um, even in some cases looking 20 years into the future. Um, but um, as um, the Japanese fifth generation effort um, uh, waned and became not so much a threat, um, companies became more afraid of mutual fund managers um, than of um, um, uh, technology um, competition, and as a result, um, most companies today only look um, a year or two ahead, in some cases less than that. And so it's very difficult to do an application um, that might take years to produce and years to pay off if, in fact, um, the organization is only willing to look a quarter or two or three ahead. And that's one of the reasons that we've gone to um, pharmaceutical companies um, uh, such as uh, Glaxo, which has been um, using Psych. Um, successfully commercially for about 10 years, um, and to the U.S. government. Um, I can't talk too much about Glaxo's use of psych, um, but basically um, um, one use that I can talk about that they make of psych um, and that um, they've been licensing um, from us commercially for over a decade is a kind of thesaurus management application, one where they have um, large um, technical thesauri of chemical terms and um, product-related terms and so on, 
Uh, these thesauri typically have hundreds of thousands of terms in them. And they're different thesauri for different companies, different countries, different years. And articles are written in compliance with a particular thesaurus. Um, and so when you're doing web searching, it would be useful if you could use your um, knowledge of those thesauri to alter a query so that if this article is written in um, compliance with thesaurus on 83, um, then the terms are changed to, um, to find those um, places in that article that are relevant or whether this article is relevant. Um, so that's, um, that, that's an example of, um, um, of what we're talking about. Doug, could you, this is David Whitten. Could you speak a little bit about the hopes that you have toward the community and research psych and contributions from outside of PSYCOR to advancing psych? Yeah, this really is um, one of the, the decisions that we agonized over a long time uh, because um, obviously the more we give out, and once you give it out you can't, so to speak, take it back, um, but we finally decided that our number one goal was to um, live to see um, AI realized. Um, and um, our, you know, some, somewhere around goal number two or three is um, um, uh, keeping PsyCorp alive or uh, maximizing PsyCorp profits or something. And so we ended up giving away um, um, almost all of the psych ontology um, in open psych, and we're, we'll be giving away almost all of psych's content in research psych, including the inference engine and the NL system and so on, um, because we really do want to encourage other people um, to help us build this, to view this as a community resource, to um, integrate um, with whatever it is that you're doing. Because I think as a community, we'll be able to get this done. And us working in isolation, um, we're just not going to be able to do it because no one of us, no one of our organizations is able to devote the, the energy and, um, um, and essentially lack of focus that's required. And I say lack of focus because each of us is so focused on whatever our particular applications and clients and, um, and so on are, are that we can't really deal with the entire um, landscape of um, um, common sense knowledge, of human knowledge, and of course not with uh, the union of um, all the knowledge that's out there on the web. But as a community, we can build the, um, the, the pump priming. We can build the ontology to the point where um, people who are not specialists in our field can take what we've done, extend it um, using straightforward interfaces, um, and get their little tiny corner um, covered. So I view this as a, um, something that would have been a disaster if we had launched it this way 20 years ago. But by now, we've gotten enough built in the psych ontology that you can take it and um, um, extend it in this way. Uh, I'd like to follow up on that this time again. Um, that that particular approach might be especially. Can you speak up? Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying to speak. That approach might be especially successful in the natural language area because uh, so much of language is uh, local. It is a, uh, one, one may have word experts and you may have individuals who will contribute modules if your language understanding machine were structured so that it could be modularized in that way. And the question I would then have is whether your language understanding um, systems are uh, sufficiently important to your profitability that, that you'd be reluctant to, um, to release those, um, uh, maybe, you know, full, full open source. So that was, um, 
yes. So basically, um, we're we're at this intermediate stage right now where um, yes, we are reluctant to do so, um, and so we've taken this intermediate position of releasing um, um, all this, including the natural language systems, for R and D purposes. So people in universities, in government labs, in private companies who want to do research and development projects can use this um, for um, zero cost uh, for whatever R&D projects they want to use it for. Um, but we are still um, um, wavering um, and we're still at the stage where um, if some company um, produces a commercial product that incorporates that, then we'd like to get some kind of royalties back from, um, um, from, from that effort. So um, um, we're, we're still debating about how much to release completely um, for um, everyone's public use as part of OpenPsych. But gradually, more and more and more material is flowing from research psych into OpenPsych, which is um, free for people's use, even commercial use, without paying us anything. Doug, this is Mike Schultz again. There was a question raised earlier about um, your reasoning agents and how working them having separate ones is important, but it raises the question of how your reasoning agents work together. Do they work in parallel? How do they combine results? How do you know which reasoning agent should address what kind of problem? That must be um, right, Yes, I, I agree. So right now we have a fairly simplistic um, um, architecture. Um, um, it's, it's, it's agentive, but they run on uniprocessors mostly, so for all intents and purposes, um, 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 it's not real parallel processing, but we're doing some experiments um, um, involving um, hardware acceleration and parallel processing acceleration to see what kind of speed up we could get if we really did run these on um, different machines. Um, and uh, right now, they essentially, um, these like 720 heuristic level modules, um, have a kind of pattern or an opaque piece of code which um, sort of raises their hand when um, they see some posted sub-problem, almost like a blackboard mechanism. So when they see some sub-problem they can work on, um, they raise their hand and essentially bid on it. And um, the most efficient one, the lowest bid, as it were, um, gets to work on it for a little bit of time. And then it can broadcast recursively to the community by posting on that blackboard. Um, but as we go through this project next year for ARDA, um, um, where we'll be having lots of people at different universities and um, research labs um, around the world participating. Uh, we're going to have to have a slightly different architecture, and there we will, we will have um, um, real parallelism with different um, systems and reasoners running on different machines in different parts of the world, um, communicating um, effectively um, uh, by sending sub-problems out over the net to each other. Thank you. Uh, uh, Doug, this is uh, Connor Shanky. I have a uh, uh, two questions. The first one is um, your mission and, and, and entire life has been to get dedicated to uh, attacking the common sense problem from, a, from its very nature very broad. And it seems that a lot of the applications or the type of problem that you attack is when there's this very almost exotic um, natural language question that is posed, which even sometimes human beings would have a, a tough time with. And you grind away and you give back a, um, a sophisticated answer. I was wondering about taking similar ideas and applying them to the, to the much more mundane, which happens continually in information systems, but making it more ontologically driven and using the same ideas that you're talking about right now which is having agencies of reasoners taking into account context and other ideas 
but to address more simplistic things that are done in almost in real time, like, you know, this customer would like this product, for example, or um, who is the brother of this particular person or brothers, um, where there's not necessarily a direct relationship between the things, but it's inferred, and we don't necessarily want to do it either by grinding out code or building SQL queries or other things like that. So I, I agree with what you're saying, but the problem is that if you're not careful, um, then um, people will take that as a um, um, as a mandate or a charter to um, to do things which appear to be um, simple, but in fact aren't. So one example is basic English, which even though it has a very small number of words, um, still lets you put together um, incredibly difficult sentences to understand that involve um, metonymy and um, um, indirection and ambiguity and um, and so on. Or um, another um, um, another example is um, the electronic um, uh, data interchange effort, which seemed to take a problem which had the properties that you're talking about, um, and yet continually um, came up against situations where there was just enough um, ontological divergence about what one company meant by employee or company vehicle or whatever it happened to be um, that. Um, humans would end up screen scraping um, the, um, the outputs, and so you'd end up with humans in the loop at every point instead of the automation that people wanted and expected. I absolutely agree and, and totally understand what you're saying, but there is a lot of fairly highly structured information. But right now, the way that we mostly have to deal with it is with these very modular um, stovepipes of application. So I know exactly what you're saying, but I, and I, I know that there's a limited amount of time. My second thing was dealing with the issue of, of federated ontologies and management and dealing with those types of issues. How, how much have you um, dealt with that in, in Psych? Uh, well, let me, let me give you um, part of an answer. Also, um, I have a few other folks here from PsychWare, and it might be nice to hear from, from one or two of them um, um, as well. One of the um, one of the heartbreaking things I think about some of the um, earlier efforts that um, that we've seen um, has been the kind of divergence um, where you have different people using the same system but building independent ontologies. Um, so we saw that with um, Ontolingua um, at Stanford. Uh, we saw that earlier at Stanford with expert system building, where even two expert systems built at Stanford using eMyson would not be able to share their rules because of um, essentially these ontological simplifications and cost cuttings and unstated domain assumptions and so on um, that um, would simply cause incorrect conclusions if you union the two um, rule sets together. Um, Michael, did you want to say something? This is Michael Whitbrock who um, works with us um, as our um, uh, Vice President of Research here at uh, PSYCOR. So um, federating ontologies in general is, I think, a very difficult problem. This is why we have um, released the open site term set um, for completely free use because we hope that um, if you can provide a seed um, shared vocabulary, um, it's more possible to align um, ontologies uh, with one another. We have done work in um, aligning uh, or federating ontologies. For example, we have mostly aligned the WordNet um, you know, ontology um, with uh, site terms. And it turns out that that's you know, often possible, but also often impossible just because you know, the fundamental definitions which are being used for terms differ. If one takes 
If one were to take a uh, radically simplifying assumption and um, only use description logic for ontologies, then of course federating them um, is straightforward because two terms can be identified with each other if their descriptions are identical to each other. But I think that that's um, not a very um, helpful... Uh, uh, in theory, that can be done. In practice, you would probably end up unifying terms which are at least... Um, the people constructing the ontologies had meant to, uh, had intended to mean very different things. But I think that, you know, um, to the extent that the necessity to go in and post hoc um, federate ontologies can be avoided by, for example, having a, a set of shared bridging terms, um, it's best to go about avoiding it. And this is sort of you know, the reason why we've made um, the open site um, taxonomic um, so, uh, projection of um, the psychontology completely free and available because we hope that it will help to mitigate this cost. Thank you. Thanks yeah, to follow that up. Uh, do you know to what extent the open site? You say you have sixty thousand or fifty thousand users. You know to what extent it has actually been incorporated into working ontologies outside of Psycorp? Uh, we, we have um, some examples of that, but we don't follow up. Unlike Research Psych, where we are tracking that fairly closely, with Open Psych, um, uh, we have no idea what most of the people are actually doing with it. However, we do know, for example, that it's been incorporated within Omega, which is uh, Ed Hoven's um, uh, is it in, uh, weak uh, ontology for uh, natural language processing. I don't say weak in any pejorative sense. I think you would agree with me with this. The purpose of it is to provide the maximum number of terms for the purpose of supporting uh, natural language processing. And that contains the um, open site ontology. Uh, Doug, this is Leo. Um, a question about microseries. Um, would you advocate maybe using that as a, uh, a notion for modularization of ontologies? In other words, uh, we, we talk about the lattice of theories. Do you, do you see that as a um, way of perhaps implementing lattice of theories? Yes, ab absolutely. I see that that is, um, if not the primary, it's a primary way of um, um, distinguishing one theory from another, one ontology from another. For example, um, when we um, when we put knowledge into this uh, um, in, into our system from um, um, news reports or other um, sources out there in the world, um, we generally um, create a micro theory which represents that source. Um, so this particular um, um, CNN report or that particular um, um, website. Um, um, uh, home page on a certain date or whatever. And those, those sources represent not just idiosyncratic, not just individual pieces of knowledge or sets of pieces of knowledge, but also um, ontological um, 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 commitments, ontological um, decisions, and um, actual ontologies of terms that are referred to um, and, um, and presumed um, in that document. And so um, gradually you build up um, um, these hierarchies, like CNN in general means the following thing, or the New York Times in general um, um, takes, um, it considers consultants to be employees, whereas um, BBC does not consider 
um, consultants to the employees, and so on. And so um, gradually over time, not just the individual sources, but um, entire um, genres of sources begin to have their own um, ontological decisions. Um, I'm Charles Klein, the uh, chief ontologist. And, um, um, you can represent different uh, ontologies using different micro-theories, but you can also talk about the differences between uh, the uh, theories in a kind of uh, cross-theory um, uh, portion of the language. So say in, in one theory, someone's, uh, in somatology, somebody's using fish to just mean sea-dwelling animal. On another one, they're using it in a sense which excludes, uh, say, sea anemones and whales. Um, we, uh, you, you, can have, you can have two theories which respect those uh, separate taxonomies, but also statements about the comparison of taxonomies so that I see an assertion in one theory, I can, I can lift it into the ontology of the other theory making the right distinction. Right, so in one theory, um, poinsettias are um, red flowers. In another, they're not flowers at all. Um, and you need to be able to represent both those things and the fact that one of these ontologies is um, um, a sort of a layman's ontology and one is a botanist's ontology. Well, uh, can I pursue this? Um, the examples you gave are uh, questions of labeling of concepts rather than anything uh, that has to do with um, logical inconsistency of concepts. And this is something that I'm particularly concerned about. Is to what extent are your micro-theories actually logically inconsistent or they just use the same terms for different concepts? Are there really logical assumptions in any of these micro-theories that truly contradict others? Um, are you referring to the rules of logic or are you simply referring to um, um, whether there are contradictory terms? Anyway, the answer to both, I suppose, is yes. Um, the, the more straightforward case is the latter, where you simply have assertions which are true in one and false in another. You have generalization, spatialization relations which occur in one and um, um, are simply false in another and, um, and so on. Um, and then the more complicated case is where the actual rules um, of um, inference are different in the two. So for example, um, a, um, a context of representing what was actually published um, um, uh, then uh, you can't, in, can't even use um, modus ponens because just because P was published and P implies Q was published doesn't mean that Q was published um, anywhere and so on. Whereas um, obviously in most micro-theories that is a valid rule of inference. It would be useful to have examples like that because um, this is a critical question, I think. Um, it's a critical to the point of view of trying to find the maximum uh, degree of relationship between different contexts of micro-theories, not just giving up your, you know, throwing up your hands and saying, oh, they're, they're really different. Yes, I, you know I agree. They are related. I think it is exactly that kind of um, um, inter-context relationship, inter-context assertions, which are going to be vital. Um, and along with that, things like deciding what context an assertion was probably made in when you didn't know, when you just saw the assertion, and so on. That kind of problem is going to be one of the hardest problems for us as a community to grapple with um, in the next several years. Um, I think we're probably coming up to uh, near the end of the time here. I've maybe um, uh, Peter or um, Leo have some final remarks they want to make. Right. I actually have one more question, and then maybe we, we take one more question also. Uh, I, my, my question, uh, Peter here, is uh, what is your take on the efficacy or the validity of a standardized uh, comment up ontology? Uh, I, I know this is a, a problem that's near and dear to some in our community and definitely uh, a, a couple of people on the call as 
Okay, so I, I would say that um, in, in a sense, um, some of the power is in um, um, the totality of the ontology, the middle parts, as it were, the lower parts of the ontology, um, not just the upper parts of the ontology. Errors that you make or inefficiencies that you make at the upper level lead to inefficiencies down at the bottom. So if you don't make a certain metaphysical distinction that you really should up near the top, you might find that all your assertions um, are, um, have an extra clause in them, an extra conjunct or something in them that they otherwise wouldn't need to have if only you had made this additional distinction up near the top or something. So um, um, don't think of it as right or wrong. Think of it as um, more or less um, efficient. And if you take in the notion of context, um, then it's not like there's one right upper ontology. It's more that there are um, several different um, plausible good upper ontologies, and we should be developing and using all of them and interrelating and aligning um, um, all of them. So that's, that's sort of my, um, um, my attitude toward that. Um, uh, Michael, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I, mean, I think you could regard upper, upper ontologies as having the same sort of status as a set of libraries in a programming language. Um, it's certainly not essential to programming, for example, that you have a large set of existing um, preconceived uh, um, so, uh, uh, ba basic functions that you can use, like Java does, for example. You can certainly program everything in C, which doesn't provide such libraries. But the existence of such a set of fundamental um, structures and operations that everybody can rely on certainly speeds along the process of making, um, well, of producing code and of producing code that can interoperate. And I think upper ontologies have the same sort of uh, um, benefit. And I would say that um, um, partly based empirically on the fact that we don't have to tinker with um, our upper ontology um, very often at all anymore and haven't for many years, um, probably the, the best, most useful, most productive um, place for um, researchers um, these days would be at what I'm calling the intermediate level, not at the upper level. So look into ontologizing um, pathways and travel along pathways. Look into ontologizing weather phenomena. Look into ontologizing um, um, life choices and occupations and things like that, which are still very general, but are um, um, orders of magnitude more specialized than dealing with things like substances and um, the notion of um, um, time and space and so on. Well, okay, but if you want to interoperate, uh, do, do you think you can do that independent of, of an existing ontology? And then uh, you already said post hoc trying to align these things is difficult to impossible. Uh, when one can concentrate in the middle level, but don't you have to use the same upper level if you want interoperability? Um, well, we, we've put forward um, an upper level. Other people can put forward theirs. Um, um, one of um, um, one, one telling um, um, anecdote um, that occurred about um, nine years ago, I think, um, was when IBM paid um, Ed Hovey to align his um, um, Penman ontology with um, Sykes ontology. Um, and when the dust settled, out of thousands and thousands of um, concepts, there ended up being about 12 um, um, small changes that needed to be made in order to align the ontology. So, um, I really don't think that this is something where there's going to be a lot of controversy or where there really needs to be a lot of additional work. Basically, um, um, a lot of good people have spent a lot of years um, developing um, um, the, the, and thinking about um, and experimenting with um, and testing um, this sort of thing. And I would say um, use what's available. Use what we have. Use what um, um, Ed Hovey has and so on. 
Um, don't spend your time um, trying to come up with your own version of this. Extend um, what we have and um, tackle some of the interesting intermediate level of specification problems which no one has tackled yet. Those are where the, um, the real opportunity for extraordinary novel discoveries um, are still there to be made. That said, applying some sort of standardized um, stamp of standardization stamp of approval that people could agree to on one of these ontologies would be helpful in making ontologies alignable, making sure that um, once you've aligned them, they license the same inferences. And that's, after all, sort of the point of having an upper ontology. So it would be good to have a standard um, if people can manage to agree on one. Right, and we really do um, um, believe that um, while ours is adequate, um, every time someone suggests something to us which is a better idea, we just change our ontology. So we're not, um, uh, we're not wedded ideologically in any way to um, our upper ontology. It's something which has evolved, and as people have made suggestions um, and um, shown problems with it, it's changed and it's evolved. It hasn't evolved that much in the last few years because we haven't gotten a lot of um, such, um, um, such problems and suggestions, but um, we're certainly willing to... Um, change the open psych ontology as we need to um, as um, other people um, point out things. Or for that matter, to have it taken over by another organization and maintained as yes. a standard. Yes, that, that would be perfectly fine. We don't see, we don't have our ego tied up in um, um, controlling um, the upper ontology. If some um, organization wants to essentially adopt it and uh, take over its care and feeding, that would be fine with us. And we'll use it. So, so can I take it that if we, if we are going to, for example, put together a panel with a few of the existing uh, apontology people that uh, we, we could expect you to, to participate also? Sure, and, and we, we might even be diplomatic. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, one more question, and, and I guess we'll, we'll almost have to... Uh, Thank Doug for spending all this time with us. One more question. One quick question, Doug. Um, could you speak a little bit about the transitions that you may or may not be pursuing between the uh, goods and the URIs? GUIDs. Yes, GUID. Um, we believe, we, uh, let me answer that. We believe that the URI representation is a good representation. We, will, um, we can establish URIs for the terms and sites, and we intend to do so. And um, we are prepared to uh, um, ensure that those URIs are as stable as the, GU, the GUIDs that we use sort of internally for inference. So uh, we, we think that URIs are a perfectly fine um, standard and um, can be a perfectly fine standard for maintaining consistency and durability of site concepts. Right, and we will do what we need to to uh, make sure that we don't end up diverging on this issue from the rest of the community. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much, Doc, for spending all this time with us, sharing your 21 years of experience. I mean, it's definitely words of wisdom to our ears. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Doug, and to everyone who is able to join us. Again, uh, this session has been recorded, and I will be posting the uh, audio uh, to the wiki page uh, later today. Again, uh, this is 
November 17th, year 2005, uh, our Ontolog invited speaker session with Dr. Douglas Leonard talking on the title, Psych Lessons Learned in Large-Scale Ontological Engineering. Thank you. Bye-bye.